Kia ora and welcome to my podcast. This is put out every day via the Kaka, which is my substack. I report on housing unaffordability, climate change inaction, and poverty reduction through the lens of looking at Aotearoa's political economy. Normally I do this only for paying subscribers, but today I wanted to open this up to the wider public, in part because I've got a whole swathe of new readers and listeners uh, through the launch of Notes. But also, um, I think this is one of the topics that really should be available widely. Paying subscribers support the work I do to make sure it's made public. So this is public interest journalism and commentary, which I could do behind a paywall and really need to, to be able to uh, continue to support the work I do. But I make sure that the most essential public interest journalism I do is made available for the public. Today I want to talk about the crisis that is threatening to turn into a catastrophe in our health system, which in itself is a function of the polycrisis we have going on in our housing market and more widely with more than 150,000 households living in poverty in New Zealand. Uh, it's clear that the A&E departments, the wards, the ramps in our hospitals are full up. This has been a crisis that's been growing, at least uh, in a public sense that we can see, for two or three years now. COVID hasn't helped at all, but the growth in our population that's been at a rate of 1.5% per year for the last 20 years or so has finally overwhelmed our public health system. And this is because we haven't invested enough in either the infrastructure, the bricks and the mortar, the hospitals, the clinics, the testing centres, the analysis, the uh, machines, all the drugs to make it sustainable. We actually spend a, a lower percentage on our health system than many others. Now, this is partly because we're slightly better, <laughs> better at it than others. Uh, the use of Pharmac for good or ill has reduced our costs as a percentage of GDP. And the use of a, a quite uh, a deliberately publicly funded healthcare system has meant we don't have some of the costs you see in the likes of the United States or to an extent in Australia. But when you compare like for like in terms of publicly funded healthcare with, say, for example, the UK, we don't spend as much on health. Now, that's partly because we don't fund a whole bunch of treatments, but also because we also have a growing problem with people who are living in poverty, in cold and mouldy houses, who are getting chest infections and skin infections, who are unable to afford uh, uh, proper nutritious food, who are becoming obese, who need treatment for diabetes, who need to have toes and feet and legs taken off, who need um, treatment for long-term health conditions, long-term mental health conditions, simply because over the years, living in poverty under that sort of stress will cause those sorts of health issues. 
Aside from that, we also have uh, an enormous amount of stress in the justice system, uh, in our prisons, in our courts, which are a function also of those levels of poverty. And over the last 20 years or so, both Labour-led governments and national-led governments have pursued a policy of trying to restrict the amount of spending on healthcare and education and other public services, because both have pursued a twin fiscal guardrail approach to running the government and the economy. This says that we want to keep the size of government at or below about 30% of GDP. Certainly in in terms of the core crown revenues, tax to GDP, at or below 30%. Now this is something that Labour has committed itself to and National is also very keen on doing. And it's seen as an unquestioned assumption across the centre of New Zealand politics. It's a a function of um, where we came from in the early to mid-80s when we actually had a larger government as a share of GDP, closer to 50%. And that was seen as unnecessary, intrusive, inefficient, particularly for an economy and a population which was flat and ageing and unlikely to need lots more investment. That was the view in the late 80s, early 90s, because at that point we didn't see much migration happening and our population was ageing, as are many in the Western world. And there had been a splurge of public investment in infrastructure through the 70s and 80s, known as Think Big, and that was seen as intrusive, unnecessary, wasteful and dangerous. So that was stopped. Uh, The Resource Management Act was brought in to stop further developments like that. And the government pulled back from investing heavily in that sort of infrastructure all over the place. So removing itself from uh, building lots of public housing, lots of renewable electricity generation, uh, trying not to build new hospitals and schools, and also uh, not building... Uh, motorways and certainly railways unless absolutely necessary and only after they had been overwhelmed. Now this was um, due largely to this great assumption that there would not be population growth that required big infrastructure investment. However, from about the year 2000 onwards, starting with the then Labour government of Helen Clark and Michael Cullen, aided and abetted by the way by at various points Winston Peters, we saw um, a significant improvement or increase, depending on how you look at it, in our population growth rate through net migration, sparked by the creation of export education and the increasing use of temporary migrants. And so from 2003 till 2019, we saw 1.5% population growth each year, every year. Now that Uh, doesn't sound like much, 1.5% doesn't sound like a big number, but that is amongst the fastest population growth rates in the developed world. It was unplanned for, we didn't build the infrastructure for it, and in fact for large periods of time, particularly from 2007 onwards through till about 2017-2018, we pretty much stopped building large uh, infrastructure, apart from in Christchurch, and for a brief burst around the global financial crisis when the then national government built quite a few motorways to stimulate the economy. 
So um, all through that time, there were various bursts of migration, some of it planned, some of it unplanned. And uh, in particular, through the mid-2000s, from around about 2010-11 onwards, when the government had a policy of doubling export education and a unconscious policy of encouraging uh, the um, introduction of temporary migrants, we saw New Zealand uh, grow to the point where it had by far the largest share of its labour force as temporary migrants in the developed world. Um, to the point where uh, we uh, uh, were the m most like Dubai of uh, any in the, the Pacific. And uh, it spawned all sorts of problems with migrant abuse, of course, and uh, the, lo the likes of the Te based International B Business Education Institute, as you can imagine. An awful lot of students brought in to study, in inverted commas, business, and spending most of their time picking kiwifruit. So uh, that some of those abuses have been um, reduced somewhat, and that was started, the reduction in the abuses and the um, clearing out of some of the more uh, obnoxious um, abuse of uh, the use of export education and temporary migration to boost the economy. Some of that started before the end of the previous national government in 2016-17 when it was realised that too many people had been um, playing silly buggers and, and promising um, permanent residency and the likes to get people in and just simply grow revenues. In effect, to sell the prospect of residency or residency itself to make your private uh, service more attractive. You're essentially using a public good to um, which you've been allowed to give away to um, sell a particular service, in this case, international education, or to get hold of um, very cheap and pliable workers who want to uh, hope to get a letter from an employer to Immigration New Zealand that gets permanent residency for yourself and your family um, if you can prove that you're a, a, um, a retail manager or a um, high-end chef when you may not exactly be that. So fast forward to today, when, uh, in fact last night, when Prime Minister Chris Hipkins announced the fourth major loosening of migration settings since June of last year to deal with an imminent crisis in our health system. Uh, as you've no doubt heard, there have been all sorts of problems with um, blowouts in wait times at A&E, uh, full wards, um, staff shortages, hours of ambulances stuck on ramps outside hospitals, uh, people delayed in getting surgery and consultations. And this has culminated this morning, actually, in the release of a report from the Health and Disability Commissioner pointing out that uh, the southern DHB, where people were waiting up to four months for an appointment with a specialist after an initial uh, uh, diagnosis by a doctor or, or a t medical test of cancer, four months, if you can imagine what that would be like, being told that you may have cancer and you're not sure how it's going to be treated and then having to wait for four months to see a, the specialist for your first 
meeting and to plan your treatment for months. And uh, the Health and Disability Commissioner uh, effectively called called out this um, failure of the Southern DHB and pointed out that this is a result of quite strong population growth. We're talking here, of course, about uh, Queenstown, Dunedin, and uh, uh, Southland, where there has been significant population growth, uh, not matched by the um, provision of new services, along with the um, increasing number of cancer treatments and drugs to be applied and used. Uh, that has meant that the Southern DHB wasn't able to handle all the growth. I quote in today's email some notes from that report, including a quote from a cancer specialist saying, for years, the people within the DHBs, as they were then, constantly applied for more staff, more budget, to deal with these pressures, and were constantly told no. This is what happens when you have a sinking lid and um, government departments and politicians and bureaucrats and median voters who do not want the size of government to increase. Uh, that is all fine uh, to do that, but of course you have blowouts in the actual uh, service levels, you have an increase in the level of unmet need, you have all sorts of stresses developing not just in your economy but in your society. And we're at the point now where... Large numbers of nurses and other professions in the health system are just quitting in not just frustration, but they're burnt out. When you have a complex system that is put under pressure through growth and through all sorts of stresses, including COVID, and um, you have a complex system which has various um, checks and balances inside it, various redundancies, bits and pieces of fat, I suppose you could call it, and when you run it hard and you sweat assets, eventually things start to break. And when they break, as in any system, they don't break in a simple, clear, linear way. They tend to all break at once. <laughs> and that's what we're seeing with our health system now. So the government, uh, as it often does, and I'm not just talking here about Labour, but also national, in a system where it's very difficult to change any of the underlying structures are in the economy. And what I'm talking about there is the size of government, the types of taxes we have, the levels of taxes as a percent of GDP, and the levels of public debt, and the size of government in our economy. It's very difficult to change that. Uh, then often you do uh, incremental uh, changes, Things you can get away with, so to speak, um, things that don't need legislative change or that aren't going to require an increase in taxes or a massive increase in debt. Now, that has meant that over the years, um, governments have used migration and population growth as a way to continue to grow nominal GDP and to essentially uh, buy re-election by continuing to keep wages and inflation and interest rates low for the main game, which for median voters who own homes is to leverage up, buy more residential land and claim the leveraged tax-free capital gains. Now that's fine as an economy, uh, uh, essentially a housing market with bits tacked on, but you end up with a very uh, low growth, and when I say low growth I mean low output per hour worked growth economy, which means low productivity, low wages, Fast nominal GDP growth, because you've got lots, lots of population growing, 
and that results in plenty of tax revenues coming in from GST in PAYE, but not from wealth or capital gains. And to continue to keep your deficits low and keep your public debt low, you avoid investing in infrastructure and you just keep the machine running hot and you sweat the assets for as long as you can and hope that the machine doesn't blow up on your watch. The machine is blowing up on someone's watch. And for the Labour government, that means reacting. And that's typically how Western governments operate. They tend to constantly be in reactive mode. It's very difficult to uh, get elected on a strategy for major change, particularly changes that would um, uh, remove or reduce benefits for one group and shift them to another group. Somehow you have to, out of nowhere, magic benefits for various groups that don't affect um, the main groups who uh, own or control the assets. And so what we've seen is uh, Labour now in the position where it faces a health crisis through winter in the lead-up to the election on October the 14th, pulling the emergency levers, which are the migration levers. So yesterday, we get to the point of the actual news, which is that Chris Hipkins announced the uh, placement of 32 health professions onto the green list. Now, the green list is a very special category of visa. It's not a temporary work visa. This is a either a work-to-residence visa, uh, which is awarded from uh, awarded here to someone coming in from overseas immediately, or a plain old straight uh, work uh, uh, straight to residence visa. So that means you get residence immediately before you've done a single day's work. Now this is unusual. Um, it really is the golden ticket of visas, and it is essentially using certainty about residency and the benefits of residency as a lure to get people in. Now that makes sense, of course, uh, if you're having to compete against others who are doing the same, Canada, Australia, the UK, the United States, Dubai. And uh, that means that you often uh, see uh, significant numbers of uh, extra bonuses um, lumped in. Now in this case, we haven't um, ever uh, had such a wide group of people in the so-called tier one of the green list, which is straight to residence. Previously, it's been you know the most uh, um, skilled, highly paid, difficult to find people, neurosurgeons, cardiothoracic surgeons, rocket scientists, those sort of people. Well, yesterday, the Prime Minister announced a whole bunch of people would join the green list, including deckhands for uh, the shipping industry, osteopaths, uh, dental technicians, um, dental health and oral health technicians, relatively lowly skilled, lowly paid people in the context of what we've seen in the past. This is a massive widening and loosening of our migration settings for the health sector and um, is designed to try and deal with these staff shortages. Uh, however, this is a continuation of what I call a churn economy approach. Because remember, we have a significant number of New Zealand residents, people who are born here and trained here, who leave each year, um, in theory, just for an OE, but they never come back. And um, you often hear people say, well, this is something that happens in all economies and we're no different and you can't really stop people from leaving. That's true. 
well, you can't stop people from leaving is true. It's not true that uh, the percentage of New Zealanders leaving and staying away is the same as everywhere else. We run at a rate of five to six times higher, the people who immigrate permanently. We have amongst the second and third highest uh, percentage of New Zealand-born people living overseas as diaspora uh, um, in the world behind uh, Portugal at the moment. At one point, we were also um, behind Ireland, but Ireland's diaspora has fallen in part because its economy is now a much higher wage, higher growth economy, um, thanks to a connection to Europe and the ability to use its tax system to uh, essentially arbitrage um, away for tax differences around the world. So uh, uh, New Zealand is in a position now because of this low wage, low growth, low productivity, but high population growth economy that we're now in a, a churn situation. The worst kind of thing if you think of any business where you're constantly having to run fast just to keep catch up. So, for example, since August, nearly 5,000 New Zealand nurses alone, so this is independently of all the other uh, people who work in our health system, just nurses, 5,000 have registered for um, accreditation in Australia, which means they're on the verge of going to um, get a job in Australia. Now, one of the restrictions on uh, people moving from New Zealand to Australia in the past has been the 2001 uh, introduction of limits on residency rights for New Zealanders living in Australia. Obviously, anyone can go there and work, but uh, if they try to set up in any substantial way, start a family, have kids, buy houses, they don't have the same rights as Australians because the Australians were worried there were too many New Zealanders coming and um, crowding up the place and um, taking benefits. That wasn't actually true. Um, New Zealanders claim benefits at lower rates than Australian-born Australians and also uh, generate more tax revenues and have, on average, higher wages than Australians. But uh, this um, view that there were a whole bunch of bludgers and Bondi um, sucking on the Australian taxpayers' uh, goodwill um, has persisted. And so John Howard um, restricted those rules post-2001. Uh, however, things are different now because there is a Labour Prime Minister in charge, Anthony Albanese, who is very keen to help bring in lots of workers. So there has been a, a population boom post-COVID in Australia of people being brought in and a very deliberate government approach of increasing the number of migrants to the point where last year New Zealand... Uh, New Zealand's then Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern agreed with the new Prime Minister Anthony Albanese that um, New Zealanders were likely to get improved uh, residency rights if they're living in Australia. Uh, and the plan was on Anzac Day 2023, which is less than two weeks away, uh, we will um, see an announcement of these changes. And from what I hear around uh, Wellington and the halls of power, um, there is going to be some sort of announcement, at least on health rights. So at the moment, if you're a New Zealander who arrived after 2001, you don't have the same rights to um, public health services as many other Australians or education rights, particularly around um, universities and uh, post-secondary post, uh, schools. 
So what does this mean? It will be more attractive for New Zealanders to go and live in Australia because they will have the option to live there and stay there permanently with similar rights to Australians. That is an escape valve that is about to open up. No wonder the government wants to uh, even up the score on the other side by making it easier for New Zealanders to come in to essentially increase the churn rate. This is, um, again, uh, part of what I call um, thinking fast, (laughs) which for those who have read the Daniel Kahneman book, Thinking Fast and Slow, examines how people make decisions, often based on their instincts and the immediate need to make the pain stop or to do something quickly to deal with an issue. That may often be um, a bad idea and uh, means that you're not thinking slowly, thinking more strategically, thinking in a more constructive and planned way. You're simply reacting. So what we, um, what we see here is a group think, a group think of fast thinking, not just by Labour, but by Labour and National, wedded to a structure of our economy in terms of taxes to GDP, the twin guide rails of keeping tax as a share of GDP less than 30% and keeping our net debt at less than 30% of GDP, well less than 30% of G, often often less than 20% of GDP. Those are limits which uh, mean that the government can't deal with the infrastructure deficits that we have and means that we are constantly running to keep up, that we have a high churn rate, a churn and burn economy. Now in the coming weeks and months I'm going to talk about some of the other options, how we could think more slowly so to speak, be more strategic and think about how we deal with population growth, what sort of population growth we should have, how we can properly uh, infrastructure it, if you like, properly plan for it and have a higher wage, higher productivity and higher well-being economy. I'm Bernard Hickey. That was a slightly longer podcast for today. For everyone um, who subscribes to both the free and the paid versions of the Kaka, uh, just to introduce a whole bunch of new people and to touch on these broader areas around our political economy. Kakiteano.